Hear ye, hear ye. Come one and all. Join us for a free introductory journey through occult theory and practice. Learn dazzling mysteries, occult sciences, and powerful spells. Heal the sick, curse your enemies, and attract the favor of that sexy human next door. All this can be yours absolutely free. All we ask is that you tune in every other week. Learn what you can and put it into practice. Some side effects may include stress relief, a new outlook on life, and a newfound obsession with small shiny objects. Tune yeah, in today. All right. Well, um, first things first, I'm super happy to say that I was able to pre-order a copy of that book, Tarotry, that we were talking about last episode. It's going to ship in October, and I'm pretty excited to read some tarot poetry. Pretty stoked on that. Nice. Um, yeah, it's actually uh, up on Kickstarter. You can pre-order it there, international shipping, if anybody's interested in it. Um, yeah, if you just Google tarotry, it's like the first thing that comes up. I like that there's just going to be this lady on the internet who wrote a book, and now there's a rando who she doesn't know promoting the book on a semi-related yeah yeah i like that too um it makes me really happy um but it's also kind of weird anywho welcome to the fool's guide to the occult episode four episode four episode four tools of the trade tools of the trade i'm a shadow on the wall i am kevin that state is ongoing nice to meet you Um, let's see. What did we talk about last episode? Talked about divination. We were, we were divining last episode. So if any of you have engaged in any divination or scrying or reading or any of that happy business, please feel free to join us on our Facebook, uh, our Instagram, uh, tweet at us. We love being twotin at, uh, remind me what are, what are those pages shadow on the wall? Uh, Facebook is Fool's Guide to the Call, I believe. Fool's Guide to the Call, prominently featuring um, the number two. Prominently featuring featuring the number two on Instagram. We are just Fool's Guide, so you can find us there. I don't think we have a Snapchat. Uh, I'm sorry, but we won't fix it. Yeah, we're not going to fix that what else we've got a community page off our base facebook page so the facebook page will post like new episodes and stuff like that and if we ever get to doing i don't know live shows or something like that years in the future you'll find stuff like that there but on the community page we want you guys to all kind of engage in some discussion chat with each other about what you're doing and we can all help each other out We'll have a little community of occult practitioners. At least that's what we'd like to see happen. It'd be pretty cool. It would be pretty be cool. Pretty cool. All right. So what? Do we, what's? Let's get down to business. Let's, what do we have to do here? Let's journal. We have to review our journal. Let's notes. journal. Yeah. Let's journal. All right. So I guess I'll go first. Please. I kind of want to end. Uh, talk about an interesting experience I had. Um, you could consider it divination or ESP or something like that. Radar um, love. But I wrote it all down in my journal. So in proper journal fashion, which I didn't do last time, I'm going to give you this weird experience I had. Um, the date was 7:25:19. Time pretty much all day from 3.08 
um well sorry basically all day from about noon to about 7 17 p.m but the weird experience itself happened sometime between uh 308 and 7 17 p.m uh, location i was at a tattoo parlor in portland oregon and the other location was my house so it kind of takes place between two physical spaces weather it's pretty damn nice out it's very sunny beautiful physical and mental condition i was in a ton of pain but very excited and very exhausted you were getting a tattoo done yes Those are not known for yeah, being so- comfortable to be honest there were a couple points when he was using this like shading uh gun that was like a bunch of needles kind of like a, he called it a mag uh-huh. it felt like a little massage it was kind of nice but yeah typically not a uh not a, a tickling experience um so yeah rituals done i was getting a tattoo um specifically a tattoo that has a lot of personal significance to me it is a giant rooster on my right leg and we can go into significance of that at another point in time. I, I think we definitely um, should. That yeah. sounds great. We can talk about that, but not, not right, now. right now. So I was at the parlor from 12.30 p.m. to about 6.20 or so. Um, but my estimated actual time under the tattoo gun was about four to four and a half hours. My girlfriend dropped by around one gave me a cbd soda which i started drinking around three and i'm pretty thankful for that because uh around three o'clock i was starting to feel a little bit in i've pain. never encountered a cbd soda um they sell them at new seasons here in oregon cool. because you know we can have cannabis stuff. yeah here. we don't have recreational here yeah it doesn't get you high it doesn't have thc no, yeah. in it it just like uh it's like a painkiller it makes you a little floaty. smooths out your processing nice. yeah exactly um, anyway, I was about being tattooed nonstop for about four hours. Um, CBD made me a little light and floaty feeling in conjunction with prolonged pain. I sort of entered a Gnostic state. I was real tranced out. Um, so this is basically what happened at 3.08 PM. My girlfriend texts me and says something along the lines of, would you like to go out on a date, uh, tomorrow or Friday? I said, of course. Let me think about which day will work best. And then a good chunk of the tattooing time when I wasn't talking to my artist, I was thinking about, you know, which day we should uh, go out on a date and what we should do. And the one thing that kept pop, uh, popping up into my mind was, oh, we should go to some park and have a picnic and watch the sunset. That's a good move. Yeah. So we had talked about this at one point, like, I don't know, a month earlier. Only one time. It's not like something we've been talking about for a while. It just was briefly mentioned through a text at one point let's see here i'm gonna skip a couple lines of this because it's not really important uh anyway so this idea kept popping up in my mind while i was getting this tattoo and staring at the wall and being in a lot of pain and when i got home i messaged 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 i can speak i messaged her back and said hey let's do friday what would you like to do and she pretty promptly responded, how does a sunset picnic sound? Now, you can chalk that up to coincidence or really anything you want as a skeptic. But um, we've been on a whole bunch of dates since then, uh, since we talked about it. And before, uh, you know, having this conversation and talking about a sunset picnic, it only come up that one time in com- conversation. So it seems like a pretty big coincidence. 
but we've talked about how like divination could be just like interrupting signals and brain consciousness that are kind of floating out there in space time yeah so so how was your um, sunset picnic yeah oh it's fucking wonderful that's great beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah and we had some like bread and brie and sandwiches and mixed fruit and what did we have to drink i think we had like some mead it was wonderful there so beautiful yeah anywho sure uh my journal has been uh, honestly fairly quiet of late i started a new job a few weeks ago so it's pretty cool honestly uh and i'm working to immerse myself in the flow and the feel of that new environment and the place that i'm working at is basically freshly remodeled and parts of it are still being built so I'm able to really contribute quite a bit to the feel of the workday and the people around me. I don't want to go into a ton of detail, but I tend to walk around the building and like meandering, kind of twisting paths as often as possible, usually like once every hour or so, because uh, it helps me imprint on the space. I've begun observing and cataloging the patterns of the people around me. I'm going to keep that bit relatively private as well for obvious reasons. But that has been the most prominent feature of my journal lately. There was one notable instance where my coworker and I were discussing another third coworker. And that third person just sort of showed up in our office uh, three times. This happened three times in the same workday. My coworker and I would start talking about them and they would just show up uh, all for different reasons. But quite literally, as we were talking about them. So that definitely went into my strong coincidence subheader. Interesting. Interesting. So that's cool. that's still kind of on the vibey theme of, I don't know if that's really divination so much. It's divination flavor. I mean, it's, it's in yeah. that vein, right? You like the idea of sort of. Just receiving signals from the world around you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah definitely. So what is today's episode all about tools of the trade take me there tools of the trade i'm going to introduce this episode by talking about something not related to tools of the trade at all so i was recently talking with a really good friend about massage and reiki um and her mother does reiki and she learned a bit of it um from her and did it on a few people and they claim that it was successful uh, she went on to say she did not believe in Reiki, um, even though she had done it on people. Um, and we talked we talked for a while about chronic pain and injuries, and she said she would have done Reiki for me if uh, she hadn't already told me she didn't believe in it. Interestingly, medical science has shown a lot of success with placebos over the years, uh, to, the, to the point where we now know the power of the mind and the placebo experience effect itself is, is over 50 percent efficacy in several studies yeah it's insane Brains it's, are it's pretty amazing they are super loopy um even more interesting to me though are the studies where people uh going into it know that they are going to receive a placebo it doesn't really affect have you heard of those efficacy like they still get about half the benefit that people receiving the standard treatment get Right, and they and they know that they're not receiving the actual medication. It's fascinating because there's a bunch of Pretty... different possible explanations for that. Like maybe just seeing someone about a problem, like like having some sort of agency to act on something that's wrong, has an impact on the state of the mind and body. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, it goes a long way to show the power of the mind and the effect um, our perception yeah. can have on our reality. So this week's episode is talking about tools of the trade, the stuff we use to focus our minds and generate a unified experience. Um, whether or not you believe magic as a large T objective truth in the universe or a small T perceived truth, I invite you to consider the effects your mind has on the reality around you. Try on different truths like clothes in a department store and just Flavors see where that truth. takes you. Like see what tastes good. Flavors. I'm here for this. Okay, yeah. so tools of the trade. These are the physical items that a magician or a cultist might use for magical, divinatory, alchemical, other purposes. You've probably heard of, dear listener, wands, athames, chalices, cauldrons, altars, rods, staves, a whole bunch of other stuff like that. We're going to do like a nice broad overview of the available tools, what they're used for, and how you can make them or where you can find them. Yeah. And is my personal belief that it's best to make things yourself uh, as much as possible. I feel like this imbues the object with your own personal energy. And I feel like anything you can make yourself will always be a Brazilian times better than anything you can purchase or just simply consecrate to the purpose which you're going to use. Just one Brazilian times? Just one, one Brazilian, Brazilian times. times. But okay. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a little bit more down with purchased objects than that. But there is a definite advantage to getting your hands onto your tools. Uh, even if you're just modifying something you've purchased a bit, maybe you bought a really gorgeous dagger and you filed some shapes uh, and runes into the ricasso or the spine or the pommel. Maybe you painted or burned a symbol that's important to you onto a cane or a staff you bought. In any event, uh, when I can't make things, my descending order of preference is things I've owned for a very long time followed by things I've purchased for the express purpose of what I'm about to do. And then lastly, but still functional, is new stuff that was laying around my house. But it seems like it'll work. Uh, and that last one will do in a pinch, because the long and short of this is, if you want it to work, it probably will. Uh, it's just a question of how hard you have to want in order to make the thing do the thing. Uh, but the longer you've owned something, the more receptive it is to your purpose and purpose shapes magical practice. Uh, so my tools of choice for me personally are knives, pens, crystals, and my hands. I've been collecting knives for about 20 years now. I've been collecting crystals for about 15. I have a couple of pens that have been with me for a long time, several years each. Uh, and I've had the same hands for quite a while now. Have you? All the cells in your body are replaced uh, by new ones every seven that's years or so. Seven years of these hands. All right, that's true. On the note of your hands, sure. as we'll find out later in the episode, I'm actually a larger advocate of using as few tools as possible, if not none. But we'll talk about that we will. later. When it comes to the usage and storage of things, I'm a pretty firm believer that all things should have their own place and purpose, even rooms. This is why I keep my bedroom free of a television and a work desk. Um, when you see these things, um, when you see things in this way, all your things have a specific dedicated purpose for which they're only used. 
when you do this, you give them a uh, symbolic form of power in your mind. So this alters your frame of consciousness when you interact with them, attuning your thought process with the specific purpose of the item when you interact with it. So the more you practice this, uh, the stronger these effects will be. So like, say, for example, your athame. If you only use it for magic instead of also cutting, I don't know, cord or whatever, something like that, um, you'll automatically shift into a magical frame of consciousness when you pick it up. Does that did I explain that? I probably? think so. Does and, that make sense? And we'll talk a bit more about I'm going to use the term reciprocal concept, uh, where when you think of the purpose, then you also think of the tool. And when you think of or touch the tool, then you also think of the purpose. And I think the closer attached those two things are, the better your consecration is. I mean, it, it has a lot to do with how well aligned your object is with your purpose, like you mentioned. Uh, but all of this comes back to impacting the way your brain is operating to me. Uh, I do agree completely that things with purpose are best for ritual and for headspacing. But I personally watched too much Good Eats growing up to want to own a bunch of stuff with only a single purpose. I have a strong drive towards multitaskers. Uh, and as a result, I find that as opposed to individual purposes, themes are really sufficient for my work. So if an object has a general theme and feel about it that aligns fairly well with what I want to do, that's enough for me to make the connection to the ritual I want to enact to get into the brain space that I need to be in. Uh, this said, I also don't have a desk or a TV in my bedroom because that's not what that room is for. I, I'm a big Alton Brown fan myself, and I agree with you on uh, multitasking and not having a bunch of unitaskers around. Um, but that's something uh, I want to both dig into and tear apart at the end of the Agreed. episode. So we'll get to that. But for now, let's just let's talk about some physical stuff because that's what this episode's Do about. Let's. All right. The first thing is the altar. Um, the altar is the workspace and home base for your magic. And if you're also doing like Sabbaths and stuff, celebration, right? Sure. Uh, it's placement will depend on the purpose at any given point in time, the number of people participating in the ritual, what um, tradition you're following, sure. what you're what you're uh, getting up to and how you're getting up to it. Exactly. So some people might say, oh, you're. Uh, altar should face north or it should face south or you should stand on your head while you do it or whatever you know i mean you could uh you could it really depends a lot it on your practice right to you. uh, if sure. you're doing more like a standard wiccan traditional work uh, you might have a candle in both back corners uh, next to them will be the idols of the horned god on the right the goddess on the left uh, next to the goddess is the chalice next to the god the place of cakes uh, in the center of the table is a pentacle. Uh, in front of the horn god will be the incense burner. In front of that, the athame. In front of that, the wand. In front of the goddess on the right is the bell. And in front of that is the bowl of salt. And between the bowl of salt and the pentacle is a bowl of water. Uh, all this said, there are tons of variations. And really, you should use whatever feels right to you, whatever fits the tradition you're trying to follow. This one is very specific. Uh, and it works for people doing very specific work in that way. True that. True that. Uh, the next setup we're going to talk about is a little different. <laughs> um, this is uh, from the Satanic Bible right. from Anton LaVey. And I don't actually fully agree with this. It's 
I I was out at First Fridays in Portland okay. um, this past Friday, and uh, we were walking through this uh, gallery called Splendiporium, and someone had these. It's great. It was wonderful, and it was magic themed. It was uh, I think the theme of the show was called Spellbound. It was really wonderful. But someone had these little books they had made, and they were they were making a whole series of them where they were just interviewing people. And the person they had interviewed for this specific book was uh, somebody that did a bunch of occulty stuff. And they talked briefly about Satanism and Anton LaVey. And I really liked this description. And don't get me wrong. I love the philosophy of Satanism. I love the satanic statements and all that stuff. That kind of hedonistic living in the moment, living in the life. 100% behind that. However, this person described Anton LaVey and Satanism as... Uh, very rock starry, like it's all about showmanship. Um, it's very flashy, and uh, they described Anton Lavey as a capitalist, which I hundred percent agree with. Absolutely, I agree with, and I think he would agree. He would agree too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even the family to this day. Yeah. So I used to sell patches of Anton Lavey, just like his face, like a famous image of his face. Um, on patches on my Etsy and I got contacted. Didn't you get C and D for that? Yeah, I got a cease and desist from like the lawyer from Staten LeVay's family saying that they own the rights to his image and then I have to stop using it because, you know, they have to make all the money off his face. <laughs> okay, I guess they did grow that face for a long time. It's only fair they I get to harvest so, that. Right. Uh, long story short, kids, get your, get like a, a copyright on your own image. So, you know. When they uh, do mug shots of you and post it all over the news, you can you can sue them for copyright and or uh, found an organization based on the enjoyment of hedonistic life practice. I mean, that really should be your top priority. But uh, anyway, let's get back to altars back to and altars. Satanism and what the satanic al- altar looks naked like. Chicks. Um, there's a couple different setups. Naked chicks. Yeah. Naked women specifically yes. is what the satanic Bible suggests. But I don't see any reason you couldn't also use a naked dude. A naked whoever. or uh, Just a naked whoever you can convince to lay there that whole time. Right. That's uh, quite a task. We should interview a professional yeah. satanic altar person. Yeah, right? If we can find... If Will you, you be my altar? Gentle listeners, if any of you are professional satanic altars, please get in touch with us on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> we, we would like to interview you. We would you. love to. Absolutely. So if you don't have a friend willing to lay naked on a table for a while where you recite some dark hocus pocus, uh, a table with a black cloth should work fine. Find yourself some black candles, arrange them however convenient. Um, You might use a chalice if your ritual calls for it. A Baphomet statue. Baphomet statue. Sorry. good. Would replace any statues of the god and goddess from the Wiccan altar. Uh, I really think we should talk more about Baphomet in a later episode. It's a really fascinating symbol, which embodies a whole lot of information. There's a ton of stuff packed into the symbol of Baphomet. Lots going on there. You may also add an inverted pentacle, a pentacle with the point facing down on your altar space. Uh, However, things like upside down crosses and other perverted Christian symbolism are really just there for show um, in movies or by goths being Or by particularly Uh, rock starry Satanists. Exactly. They don't really have anything to do with Satanism per se. But, you know, the pyrotechnics Um, make a kiss show. So I I get it. Yeah. You know, if that's what gets you in the mood, do what you got to do. We will do an episode on Satanism at some point in time. And we can talk a whole lot more about it then. If you're really in a hurry, uh, last podcast on the left did an episode. It's pretty dope. Pretty dope. 
Uh, if you're going for more of a Wiccan path, uh, page 122 of Solitary Witch by Silver Raven Wolf, lesson two of Buckland's complete book of witchcraft, excellent sources on altar setup. Buckland even provides woodworking plans. He does, yeah. Um, his altar is pretty cool. Um, but it's it assumes that you have the tools and know how to to do some carpentry. There is so definitely some not, like woodworker privilege in Buckland. I don't know that that's ever a phrase I thought I would utter, but there is some like woodworker privilege. He also like teaches you how to forge out anathema. That's pretty so cool. General craftsmanship. Um, some crafty assumptions in Buckland. Yeah. Definitely. Otherwise, you can be all chaos magician about it. Use the hood of your car, your desk at work. I definitely, on one notable occasion, did a working by carving runes into the rust on a grill at a public park in the middle of the night. So whatever works, kids, whatever works. Really? Absolutely. I like mobile stuff. As we'll talk about later, I actually don't use a whole lot of the things we're going to talk about in this episode unless it's absolutely essential for me to immerse myself in a certain experience or gestalt. Um, I really find that with a piece of chalk, um, a stone or cement floor and a single either black or white candle, I'm pretty much good to go for almost anything I want to do. I tend pretty strongly towards kind of two modes. I, I like to have a base of operations, but I also like having not really so much a mobile kit as like adapting to my local surroundings. So in spaces that are mine, that I've taken ownership over, like my house or my car, uh, my setup is focused a lot on me because the space itself is modified to fit my needs already. I'm all juiced up in that space. So maybe that's a special crystal I have hanging from my rear view. Maybe it's an elaborate table layout with chalk and candles and shiny rocks and stuff. Maybe it's a sigil that I've carved into the wood of my desk and filled with silver wire and painted over. Um, Out and about, though, where I might do some work uh, with a pen that I've consecrated as like a combination athame and line scribe, mostly... Uh, I like to build mobile workspaces out of things I find in the space I'll be working. Uh, you know, I, I haven't been there. I haven't been getting my brain juice into the space, changing the energy to suit my needs. So I find that bringing too much of my stuff can interrupt the existing feel of a place. Absolutely. And you can use the stuff in the place to get the energy of the place Absolutely. into you. Like if I'm in the woods, I want local rocks and branches and crap that I find to create a space with. If I'm in a parking lot, uh, maybe it's gravel and bits of grass and like a Denny's napkin. Uh, if I'm at someone else's house, that's a bit of a special case. Uh, I want stuff that they have willingly loaned me for the express purpose of the working that I want to do. There are three reasons I have for that. Uh, one, the thing that they're going to loan me has been in the workspace and flit and, and fits the, the flow of that space. Uh, the second reason, they've loaned it to me willingly for a special purpose. And that's like priming the pump on a formal consecration that I'm about to do to align whatever object it is with my purpose. That's like step one. And step three, I don't, as, a, as an ethical thing, I don't make workspaces in other people's houses without their permission. And this secures that bit as well. So I don't care what the things they loan me are. It's a stapler, a dessert fork, and half a dozen clothespins. That's fine. The important bit is it's their stuff that they've owned, willingly offered to me for the express purpose of the casting or working that I want to do. Uh, And from that foundation, I can spin it to whatever purpose I need. Those are some great points, Kevin. Thanks. Uh, Next, we're on to like, uh, looks like spell Let's books. Let's talk about spell uh, books. books of shadows, grimoires, grimoires, whatever you'd like to call it. Obviously, our one of our most fundamental uh, tools is our journal. 
but it's not exactly a magic magic flavored. It's magic flavored. It's your notes. It's your your review book, if you will. What I do want to start with, however, is the spell book, Book of Shadows, sometimes referred to as Grimoire, as I mentioned. What do you, what do you think of these? Oh, uh, um, if you ever see the abbreviation BOS, uh, by the way, that stands for Book of Shadows. That's that's witchy shorthand. In certain circles, it's Brotherhood of Steel, but in our case here, it's going to be <laughs> Book of Shadows. True. We are not True. in Fallout. Thank goodness. It's already pretty rough around here, folks. Hey. I don't need it that bad. I personally am not as into the formal spell book thing. I keep notes on oh, maybe half a dozen rituals that I use fairly frequently, but even those are subject to a lot of change and wiggle over time. Like magic, for me, needs to come from the current and immediate place the caster is at. And as a result, I don't really want to use much more than an outline of some major points I need to hit along the way of a ritual I've enacted before. I want to shape it from the place I'm at as a caster right then and there, which we'll talk more about next episode when we talk about writing your own magic. But my old Book of Shadows from high school and college was like half made up of like cutout scrawling from the margins of calculus notes. There's, I mean, some of the structural bits need to be constant. You need to remember the big landmarks in the rituals you want to enact, or it's not the same ritual. So that's really all that I have in my spell book. Hmm, nice. I had a really awesome one I made back in high school. I had copied a number of different pieces of information into it, magical charts of like lunar activity and herbs and all symbolism and all kinds of stuff. That's a handy stuff. reference. Um, uh, yeah, it's really cool. I don't know where it is. I hope it still exists in a box somewhere back in New York. I'd really love I'm to find it. It's probably fascinated my by your sort of like pending library, your library in stasis, hiding in closets scattered across your your folks place all across the country. I I still have stuff in Chicago, too. So like my guitar, my seven string guitar is in uh, storage in one of my in-laws house and then i have like a library split between two homes in new york it's it's not type stuff all over the country <laughs> anyway according to solitary witch by silver raven wolf she goes into a, a bit a bit of history of the book of shadows sometimes abbreviated the bos as you can imagine for a long time magic like history and most other human knowledge was a matter of oral tradition and as silver raven wolf pulled points out due to the oppression of paganism and other changes in the world that became important to write down magical knowledge in order to preserve now we kind of have the advantage of like cloud-based books of shadows if you want to like set up a big elaborate google doc that works pretty well too yeah. silver raven wolf does not discuss uh google doc spell books uh she does go on to discuss the content however uh that they are essentially like a magical notebook with a ton of information not really in any particular order uh she uses the analogy of the book of shadows being similar to your grandmother's recipe book uh, in my experience that's pretty true although my grandmother was famous for broiling a cake one time and her recipe book is not one to which i refer uh, many books of shadows I've looked at have been collections of spells, charts, diagrams, rituals, recipes, uh, journal entries, just kind of all mixed together. SRW, and if we say SRW from now on, we're that's Silver Raven Wolf. That's our abbreviation. If anyone needs an abbreviation. If anyone needs it. I just don't want to say Silver Raven Wolf. 
over it just kind and of blurs over together and after over. a minute. It does. It does. It becomes one so, but, 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 big word. Anyway, SRW also notes that many spellbooks contain symbols um, or abbreviations mixed in with actual rituals, which may confuse uh, historians and people that are not really in the know. And the purpose of these apparently was to act as a sort of code in shorthand. If you didn't know the coded language, you couldn't complete the rituals, making the book essentially useless. On page 133 of Solitary Witch, she includes uh, a ceremony for empowering your own personal Book of Shadows. Um, But again, most of the time I feel that just dedicating something to a specific purpose is enough. Uh, I tend to have very few specific rituals that I do most of which are process-oriented rather than vocal and are memorized at this point, so I don't really write them down. And when it comes to designing a ritual or spell for a specific purpose, um, which is the topic of our next episode, by the way, I make that ritual from scratch every time. So I have like a basic ritual framework that I do to enter magical consciousness, to create magical space, to clear my mind, and all of that is sort of a internalized process, yeah. uh, some of which we've talked about already. But when it comes to like a specific spell, say to um, find something that's been lost or find a new job or make someone stop uh, harassing a friend, I would create that ritual or that spell rather uh, from scratch each time. I think that while it might hold true for formulaic Wicca, more of the practice of chaos magic kind of defeats the secret symbol bits. Cause if you just assume that it's going to work, it probably will. Yeah, that's fair. Like one weakness of cryptography is if the thing that is encrypted isn't necessary. So if they've encoded this special information in their books of shadows, if the person reading that material doesn't need the information that was encoded, they only need the bit that's in plain text, then it doesn't really matter how yes. good your code is. Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. But I, th- I think in the most of the historical examples that uh, SRW was talking about in Solitary Witch, it was like key components. That to makes more sense. That makes a lot more sense. Shit. Yeah. It wasn't just like random yeah. words. It was like, yeah, recipes and like and things like that. Anyway, on to the, the pentacle. pentacle. The pentacle is a thing that some people have on their altars. Pentacle is basically any object with a pentagram on it or an object that is itself sure. a pentagram. So like a pentagram would be like the 2D version of the star with a circle around it. Pentacle is like carved into something or made of stone or made of, uh, I don't know, metal, sure, whatever. fancy metal. It represents the five classical elements. We sometimes say um, the four classical elements when we're thinking of fire, water, earth, and air. The fifth point being the unified greater element of spirit Boron. or ether or whatever you, you would like to Boron, call it. Boron, of course, being the fifth element. Yes. Boron. I thought the fifth element was uh, uh, Mila Jovovich. I don't think she's made of boron. No. I think um, she's made of people also, like the rest of us. Uh, kind of. Wasn't she an alien in that Probably. movie? And then they rebuilt her from It has been far somehow. too long since I've watched Fifth Element for me to speak intelligently on it. Uh, it's been a long time. Anyway, uh, moving, moving past that. Forward. <laughs> The elements can be placed around the pentagram in different ways, depending on uh, if you're following the Western or Eastern system. of. Uh, It is worth noting at this point that we're discussing the Western set of elements. In the Eastern set of elements, uh, specifically the Chinese system, uh, elemental metal is used in place of air, wood in place of spirit. And when placed in the proper order around the pentagram, 
the cycle of generation and destruction can clearly be followed. But that too uh, is something that we're going to cover in the future. Yeah, and it'll probably be its own dedicated uh, episode or series of episodes on the Eastern systems. I really like the generative and destructive system that cycle of the elements so yeah it will definitely talk about that it's very cool uh in ceremonial magic at least for craig i think we're pronouncing his name wrong we should we're gonna call him craig because we've been doing it but i think it's actually donald michael craig i have no idea whatever i have no idea either uh the pentacle serves a very simple purpose on the altar for him it is simply for catching and directing earth energy Uh, he also discusses its use as a defensive tool um in lesson three part six uh, modern magic where he goes into great detail on its construction noting that it should be made of wood or metal around six to nine inches in diameter concaved if possible and continues to discuss the intricate painting and marking necessary to make it a functional object for the use of there ceremonial There is a reason magic. that neither of us is like a ceremonial path mage. Like that, that's a bit involved for me. It's so involved. Like if so, that's what so you do, gentle listener, that's wonderful. Uh, and I hope that you derive great fulfillment from it. But that is not my scene. Well, yeah, some people are really into that. They want every single thing to have a purpose and be highly specific. It's and I great. understand that. I it's get that. It's super great for them. It's great. I, it's I need things a little loosey-goosier. Moving on to the athame or dagger. Uh, the purpose in magic, it represents one of the four classical elements. Uh, in Wiccan tradition, it represents fire. For ceremonial magicians, it represents air. Uh, It's typically used for the ritual drawing and casting of the magic circle. This can also be done with the sword uh, in bigger workings. uh, Traditionally, not actually used to cut physical things. In the sense of a magical sword, yes. I've also, I've heard of people using a spear as well, but maybe that's for something else. I feel like that like blends some stuff together. Yeah, yeah. In ceremonial magic, the dagger represents the element of air. In Lesson 4, Part 4 of Modern Magic, Krieg goes over the proper uh, decoration of the dagger, according to his path. He also notes that uh, since the dagger is a spiritual tool, it should never be used to cut flesh. So you want to get a brand new knife that has never uh, cut flesh before. If not, you know, make your... Uh, SRW discusses the Athame and Solitary Witch. I guess there's some debate among Wiccans about what the blade should be made of. Uh, Apparently, some believe that iron or steel will interrupt your intentions uh, and that the direction of your will uh, is interrupted by iron. And it's absolutely out of the question for those working with the fae. That's uh, fairies for those of you who are not nerds. nerds. Um, And we're not talking about those cutesy little Lisa Frank fairies from, you know, the 90s. No, we're talking about supernatural fae. They're like those fairies in that show. Yeah, the magicians, if you've ever seen that, like the tricky, the tricky kind of sometimes nasty and malevolent. We get some really cool tradition and mythology from fairies, particularly uh, Irish and Celtic type mythology focuses on fairies. There's a bunch of different magical traditions that focus on fae. Yeah. Uh, But one of the more common threads is that cold forged iron is not compatible with the fae. Yeah, fey energy at all. So you don't want any kind of steel or iron around you if you're trying to work with those kinds of uh, magical folk. Uh, The Romans and other cultures like the Aztecs use ritual knives for human and animal sacrifice. Yeah. And um, if you are working in a tradition that's based in 
North and South America, maybe you're working with shamanism or something like that, you might consider using a stone dagger or uh, specifically obsidian, flint, obsidian. Yeah, obsidian or chert. Chert. Um, Flint napping is very difficult, um, but if you get a knack for it, um, it's a worthwhile craft. Uh, Zoroastrian magi used daggers as well. And sometimes other implements to carve ritual furrows to protect their sacred spirit. Uh, the f- sure the the furba uh, is a three sided dagger used in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, in this context, it's either pierced into the earth or plunged into a bowl or basket of rice, creating an axis mundi, uh, a connection, a symbolic connection between the heavens and earth. Uh, related to the world tree. In some Wiccan con- traditions, there's also a stick. I believe it's called a stang, which is essentially a forked Y-shaped stick, similar to a dowsing rod. It's about three to five feet in length, and it's used as a centerpiece in the circle. This is not at all related to the athame, but serves a similar purpose as the furba you mentioned. It's a centerpiece in the, uh, in the circle and is driven into the ground to represent the world tree or... Um, if you're working in the Scandinavian traditions, I believe it's pronounced Yggdrasil. I've heard Yggdrasil. I've heard Yggdrasil. I've heard a bunch of different ways to pronounce it. Yeah, that. there's a few different. I, I will not even pretend Ooh. that I know how to pronounce it properly. Because of this, it functions sort of as a mobile altar, which is really cool, and also represents um, the power of three, the trinity, the horned god, and a number of other forces. But anyway. Back, Back to the Athame. To the, Athame. the Athame is also used in magical rituals, some of which um, involve calling the quarters or the elemental guardians of the four cardinal directions. It can be used to draw pentagrams and other sigils in the air. Um, specifically, um, the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram comes to mind, which is... Common banishing ritual, like from ceremonial paths. Yeah, definitely. I've definitely seen it used outside of ceremonial magic sure. as well. There are some stripped-down versions of it. Uh, Craig talks about it in his book. You can Craig. learn it there. You could also just look it up on the internet. You know, it's out uh, there. there is some debate... Uh, on whether or not the blade of anathema should be double-edged or not. I am going to personally argue uh, that it is the power of the magical implement that's important and not anything specific regarding the number of edges, the material composition, engravings, decoration, anything like that. My go-to knife of choice is a beat-up old Benchmade Griptilian that is all scratched to shit from going up and down a bunch of mountains and out on canoe and hiking trips it's been with me for 20 years and it's pretty much perfect for anything i've ever used it for awesome in wicca i'd like to know there's also a knife called a bowline sickle shaped one or a bowline yeah this is specifically dedicated to like cutting magical herbs or other kind of utility work you might need to do sort of as like a side tool to have so that you don't Use your athame for work that is not magical. Not suited to it. Correct. The sword, um, as we've already mentioned, kind of serves the same purpose as the athame, but is usually used in larger circles um, where everyone might carry their own athame for personal use. Usually only the high priest or priestess of the circle will carry a sword and probably use it to cast a circle during the ceremony or draw down energy to call the quarters. And things you like want that. a circle big enough that you're unlikely to clock somebody with your sword. Yeah, or cut up the walls right. or, you know, your pretty posters in your Definitely. dorm room. Or wherever you happen to be. Um, alternatives. Alternatives to athames. Ooh, this will be fun. Uh, a shard of glass or a broken like mirror. A, like a stingray barb. Ooh, I like that. Um, butter knife. 
uh, your hand with your thumb tucked in. Ah, uh, that's my preferred yep. one. Broken crazy straw with a sort of sharp. Yeah, bit. definitely. Uh, I mentioned earlier a pen mightier than the sword. Don't you know? Uh, less likely to mess up dorm room posters. Uh, banana. Banana. Whatever works. Whatever works. All right. Uh, let's talk about wands, staves, and rods. Uh, we'll start with the wand. The The purpose of a wand, similar to the Athame, it's, it's used to direct magical energy to the purpose of the caster. Uh, the difference is Athames are typically more aggressive, uh, maybe weapon-flavored. The wand is somewhat more subtle, but it can be used to draw and cast a magic circle, draw down energy, imbue other things with magical energy, and so forth. Hmm. The wand is associated with the element of air. According to Silverware Ravenwolf, that's SRW, the earliest examples of wands are from ancient Egypt, uh, Teutonic, and Norse cultures, which were flat pieces of wood carved with magical symbols. Some of the early Egyptian ones, she notes, were made of hippo that's ivory. Cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool, but don't go out and kill don't, hippos. They will get you. The hippo will win. The hippo will kill you, and if you shoot it, I'll be mad. And the hippo will still win. They are terrifying. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. Yes. She suggests that it should measure about from elbow to wrist and can be made of all manners of materials to suit your purpose. So that's one of those really personalized sure. kind of traditionally made of wood. Some people uh, affix gems uh, along the length of them, pointed or faceted gems to the tip. Sometimes copper is used in wand construction as well due to its uh, association with conductivity. You can carve runes or sigils or other magical symbols into them. You could use ribbons of significant colors and wrap them around your wand. Hmm, absolutely. In ceremonial magic, Raphael is considered um, the archangel of air and holds the wand. However, the wand itself represents the element fire in ceremonial magic. Okay. It's a tad bit confusing. Eh. According to Krieg, Krieg, the wand is responsible for the direction of the magician's energy, which I think most other traditions will agree with. Sometimes I think many of our sources will disagree with Krieg, but in this case, I think most of them would would agree with that argument. However, Krieg's system, there are many different wands in ceremonial magic, all with their own unique attributes and purposes. Naturally, Krieg goes on into extensive detail Great, on elaborate, the overwhelming detail. This can be found in Lesson 6, Part 2 of his book, Modern Magic. I normally, I wouldn't bother with discussing this, except there are two things I would like to bring up. First, being that he holds a very strong opinion regarding the association of the, of the magic wand with the phallus, um, something which I reject being someone who seeks a balance of energy is may maybe it's a reason I don't really use wands very maybe. much. He also, and more interestingly, in my opinion, discusses inserting a magnetized piece of wire in the length of the wand. Now, personally, if I was going to use a wand, I would be more inclined to insert, insert copper into its length. However, with the association to fire, uh, steel being a metal, representing that well the southern dipole of the magnetic wire is supposed to be at the tip so there's some cool conceptual stuff there i personally feel like you could skip a lot of steps just buy a piece of threaded rod magnetize it that's your magic wand now there you go that's a good point. so that's yeah anyway he goes he goes into he goes elaborate into detail yeah you're really like face melting detail uh, so that's yep. the wand Let's talk about the rod and the staff a bit. Both have been used to symbolize authority throughout history. 
Uh, if you look at the use of rods in role-playing games like D&D, they're typically magical items. They show up as tools used to command creatures or elements or enact various other esoteric purposes. In magic, a typical rod should be about three feet long, painted or carved in a personally significant fashion uh, or something relevant to your tradition. Same, pretty much same thing for the staff. Typically for a staff, it's chosen by how it feels in the hand, how good it is uh, as a walking stick. So I suppose you could uh, choose or make uh, a good cane to serve the same purpose. There's an entire discipline in a martial art I used to study called Tung Su Do that is entirely specialized in the use of the crooked cane because the Grandmaster was getting super old and wanted to keep being a badass. So he developed a martial Mm -hmm. art around using his cane. I'm totally going to make a good fighting cane and make it multifunctional. That's great. I was actually recently looking at cane fighting from a European and American context. Bartitsu? Uh, I don't remember any of the... I looked at a few different ones. particularly funky uh, one because it was British. I forget the exact time period of it, but it was around the time that it became legal for men to carry canes, but it was illegal for them to be placed anywhere but under the right arm. Interesting. Uh, I don't think this Probably was it not. then. It was uh, Victorian okay. era, and it was like uh, like Victorian cane fighting with like the canes with the big ball uh-huh. head. And then the other one I was looking at was a recent crooked cane um, fighting system from an American okay. context, which was kind of so, interesting. Um, equally as interesting as Asian cane fighting systems. But anyway, let's move Back to uh, rods and staves. The only major difference other than size for the staff is that sometimes the staff has trinkets of personal significance, talismans attached to it. And in Wiccan tradition, according to SRW, the high priest or priestess may have symbols on their staff that indicates the number of covens they direct, the number of members they have initiated, Uh, But for all other purposes, the use of the staff and the rod fit the same spot as the wand. The redirection of or direction of uh, magic and personal will. So let's talk about other stuff that you could use for that. All right. All right. Um, A long, thin bone. Uh, A stick. You pick up a stick. I used uh, a hemp stalk from one of my cannabis plants that I grew at one point. Uh, The index finger of your dominant hand. That is a personal favorite of mine. How about a stalk of Brussels They come on these really long, thick, chunky stalks. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I once saw uh, the band of Monsters and Men perform in Chicago four or five years ago, and the drummer played a couple songs using a bundle of celery instead of drumsticks. You could probably use either um, celery or drumsticks as wands felt so inclined a leak would be, be great perfect. yeah absolutely onward we go <laughs> all right onward let's talk about go. the the cup or the chalice uh it can be used to hold holy water for a ritual uh if you are operating in a specific tradition it may contain wine or cider uh, or some sort of sacrament so remember to pour some out as libation to your patron. Um, and a little bit out for your fallen comrades. Uh, the chalice, it represents elemental water. Uh, it could be almost anything. Clear glass, silver cup, wood, pewter. Just make sure um, if you're using pewter, it's lead free. And I, I think... You really don't want lead poisoning in ritual. No, and I, th- I, th- I believe most pewter that you'll find in the United States, as long as it isn't imported, is lead free. But it's... I think it's regulated. It's re- it is regulated. But, you know, if you're outside the U.S., if you're in a country without regulations, although... Lead regulations? Yeah, we're fastly losing our 
our safety regulations in this country too. But anyway, just funny. I'm still not interested in consuming lead. So that's really a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Krieg discusses shape, painting, sigils, all that kind of stuff in lesson five of modern magic. If you are uh, digging into the ceremonial path, you can look that up. Not my bread and butter, but I will say there's a lot to be said about adapting purchased uh, materials to to meet your own needs. You're probably not going to go into your shop and hammer out a copper cup. So you're probably going to be buying something. You you could. Don't let us stop you. No, not Um, at all. But yeah, decorate decorate those things that you've obtained uh, in a way that dedicates them to your work. Add symbols of personal spiritual significance. Uh, As we've discussed, not everything has to be totally handmade, but it is worthwhile to spend some time modifying your ritual tools. Absolutely. All right. I think it's time for an interlude, uh, one of our famous interludes. Mm. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you by... The Three of Cups. The Three of Cups. Okay. Right side up. The Three of Cups represents celebration, Creativity, collaboration, and friendship. Upside down, Three of Cups represents a need for independence or time spent alone. I'm here for that. Truth. All right. So let's talk about some other ritual trappings that are kind of related to tools of the trade, Uh, like plain clothes versus cloak or robe uh, versus sky clad or naked. Yeah. Also, jewelry or not. I went to uh, Circle once with a Wiccan girl I dated for a bit, uh, I think my second year in college. Um, and I went with her family, a uh, small two family thing. There was their priest, his wife, their daughter, um, the girl I was seeing at the time, her sister and her mother. And, and I was there as well. Uh, so there were about seven of us. I sat outside of the circle and just observed their practice. The priest was, uh, being a shadow, being on, the the shadow on the wall. The priest was a old school Irish guy, like grew up in Ireland, amazing accent. I could have like listened to him talk all day. Um, (laughs) Anywho, uh, they did robes, but no jewelry. So like jewelry was a big no, no. Aside from that, uh, skyclad means, as I believe Kevin already pointed out, uh, naked. For those of you who aren't in the know, now you know. And honestly, I think I would much prefer... uh, to do ritual this way, but only solitary. I'm totally down with like going to the nude beach and stuff. None of that bothers me, but that's not really where I would go to do ritual. Exactly. Work. Exactly. Um, like unless to, to discuss purpose, that's not what it's for. Right. The nude beach is not for ritual work. Right. That's not what, that's not what the nude beach right. is Right. Maybe if you're doing like uh, some kind of sexy magic, I don't know. But anyway, I mean, if we're all standing in a circle doing a ritual together, totally naked, I'm probably going to be looking at your body, no matter who you are. And that's going to distract yeah. me from, you know, the focus I need to actually get shit done. But I, that said, this is not a rich, rich, uh, an issue for everyone. Um, and there's a lot of power in group ritual. Um, so if you can do that all naked and stay focused at the task at hand, more power to you. Literally. I feel like that's going to be a thing where if you're part of a group that normalizes that, where the social environment is just that fits and it works and you could roll with it. Great. Like do that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I am that person. No, me either. Um, but onward we go. go. Let's talk about the sensor. Okay. The sensor. Um, this is not that, uh, 
organization in your government which decides what is acceptable to be released to the public or not. No, we're talking about right. um, a device used for delivery of incense or smoke of some kind. Or smoke or whatever. Yeah. So some people use this to represent the element air. Uh, it is believed by many cultures around the world that smoke from burning incense or from a, a fire uh, carries your prayers to the deity you're, you're worshiping or petitioning at the time. Uh in terms of what you put in the sensor to burn, uh, there are countless herbs. Uh, I'm sure someone's counted, but I have not. So for our purposes, they will be countless <laughs> uh, that can be burned for different purposes or combined for specific purposes. Frankincense and myrrh, uh, classic for balancing masculine and feminine energy. Dragon's blood is a common additive as well, although I have no idea what I it believe is. it's for like enhancing or adding power to a, a ritual or any... Like in a botany sense, I have no idea what dragon's blood is. Oh, it's um, it's sap from a tree, and I forget specifically what the tree is, but yeah, it's, it's sap. Okay. Uh, you know who would know? Scott Cunningham. Yes. Scott Cunningham's books, uh, Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, and his book, The Complete Book of Incense, Oils, and Brews, uh, which also teaches you how to make these things from scratch. I'm a big fan of lilac. Uh, my mom had a lilac bush outside our house when I was growing up. So anytime I need to induce a sense of comfort or belonging, that's what I go for. So scents from herbs that are significant to you, just as important as the accepted or encyclopedic use of a particular plant. Yeah, my grandmother had lilac trees. Um, so lilac's pretty significant to me as well. Um, I also yeah. personally like uh, nag, nag champa, sandalwood, and lavender. Um, but I want to make a note on sandalwood. Sandalwood is a lovely scent. It's it's It really is. Um, but the tree is kind of under environmental threat. So if you're a big fan of sandalwood as well, Try and get a synthetic smell if possible. Um, not still smells not the actual tree. The synthetic still smells. Pretty it really good. does. Uh, white sage is also a scent I'm really fond of. Sure. So the goal for me usually is just to generate a pleasing, relaxing scent. I'm not really trying to align certain herbs with certain deities or magical purposes most of the time. Usually I do that all mentally. Um, but some people really like to do that. And if that is uh, what works for you, what helps you make your magic work, then then go out and do it. Scott Cunningham's books Great. will certainly help you out in that direction. Certainly will. Uh, alternatives to a sensor. Uh, what about scented candles? Although this may get in the way of the imagery that you're trying to cultivate. Uh, you know. Although if you have candles on your altar already and you're making your own candles, do feel free to scent Absolutely. Them. Uh, oil diffusers. Sure, why not? Um, you could drill a hole in a piece of wood and stick a incense stick right in there instead of using some kind of uh, incense box or uh, a lamp or something like that. I've seen some classic incense burners where it's pretty much just like a stick with a little hole. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty perfect. Uh, Cone-shaped incense can be burned on a little tile. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I have a little brass lamp, sort of like a genie lamp that I burn cone incense in sometimes. Palo Santo uh, smudge sticks. These are from South America, sure. um, specifically a South American tree, and they're used uh, in a similar way as white sage for clearing space, negative energy, and banishing and stuff like that. Nice. Uh, the bell is another implement we can talk about. All right, let's talk about um, sure. Association with elements are kind of mixed on the bell. Uh, it represents air. Uh, in Wicca, it represents the goddess. 
Some people associate it with water because of the way the sound waves are similar to ripples in water. In Wicca, it's used for uh, uh, invocation and banishing, scaring away evil spirits, sometimes um, sounded at the four quarters to call the watchers of the cardinal directions that are associated with the elements. Um, when doing this, it's rung five times. Uh, it can be rung to mark the beginning and end of a ritual, to seal energies after casting a circle or releasing them at the closing of the circle. Uh, in this case, it is rung once. Yes. Uh, some people use them to clear and charge other items such as crystals or herbs uh, before use. For this purpose, uh, typically it's rung three times over the object, kind of shake everything loose sure uh additional uses according to srw ringing the bell four times to seal in a spell or an act of magic uh depending on the tradition seven or 21 times for necromancy uh, so anything involving communing with the dead uh nine times to call upon a particular deity or higher power great let's talk about some alternatives sure how about a gong i really like gongs this might be considered appropriation-y a little bit um, but I guess you could just use a symbol like uh, from a sure. fancy drum kit or your marching kit or whatever. Nice splash symbol might sure, work well. That's definitely what Zildjian wants to sell their stuff yeah, on. Yeah, for magic. Uh, chimes, same thing. Uh, wooden or metal xylophone. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Or triangle. Yeah, that would that'd be nice. A good tuning fork. Ooh, I'm a fan. I'm here mm-hmm. for that. Uh, what about singing bowl? Although again, this might, oh, those are cool. They're really cool. Again, treads a little bit on the cultural appropriation, but if you know, I mean, if you're using them respectfully and with awareness of the tradition they come from, you're probably fine. The name of the game is be respectful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, bowl of water. Uh, obviously this represents the element water. Uh, it can hold blessed water for a ritual, uh, like a cleansing the circle or an object, Uh, It could be involved in initiating a new member into magical or religious life. Bowl of salt represents the element earth. It is sometimes used in blessing rituals and purification rituals as well. Often a little bit will be sprinkled into the water, helping to create holy or blessed water. Uh, This isn't a thing I've done. I have on my own altar or not, at least not since I was 12 or 13. Then again, I'm also no longer strictly following a Wiccan path. That's a, a very a very Wiccan path thing to do. Sure. I typically have earth covered by crystals. I'm good on that one. Um, candles. Let's talk about candles. All right. I'm going to highly recommend that you learn to make your own candles if you can. But again, that's my thing. Paraffin's cheap, y'all. Paraffin is super cheap. cheap. You can find candle making kits um, at pretty much any craft store. I just go to my local Michaels. Um, You can add dye to the wax to make uh, colors, add essential oils to give them a specific smell. You can even shape them into certain forms if you want to like create, uh, uh, I don't know, like a poppet out of them. Or um, you can even carve uh, your own sigils or runes or whole spells right into a candle if you want or even just thematic shapes yeah certainly um srw talks about in solitary witch on page 141 you should not be blowing out candles that the breath of life should not extinguish the spark of life uh so fire you can put them out by clapping snuffing so forth i just wet my fingers and squeeze the wick i just blow them out not gonna lie fair enough the color of the candle is often considered to be important we're not going to go into super fine detail on this uh, but colors can create uh, an emotional experience leading to unified expression uh please feel free 
to look up some stuff on colors on your own. There are many resources. You can just, uh, yeah. I think purple is the best color. I'm a white or black person. And for me, that's not coordinating to white or black magic. It's just I prefer like a white is like a pure 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 light and black is all of the colors to me if you are buying candles they're probably gonna be white you can go out to your local like spell shop or get uh you know, like new age shop or get them online if you want specific spell candles if you're super fancy you could also get like uh like the fancy jarred candles oh yeah um, the, the super scenty ones the super scenty ones they they do smell pretty profoundly True. Um, but we'll we'll leave all of that stuff up to you. Be creative with your colors. Pick something that you personally resonate with, or if you, something that works for yeah, you. Yeah, whatever works for you. Um, or look up a chart if you are feel so inclined. We're gonna move on to crystals. Though. If you're a chart oriented person, yeah. Let's move on to crystals. Let's again. There are far too many crystals to cover individually. Uh, oh yeah. There really are crystals for basically any kind of magical working you want to do. Um, if you're going to get into crystal magic and whatnot, you should, again, I'm going to point you at Scott Cunningham. His book, Crystal, Gem, and Metal Magic is pretty good. But before we move ahead, Kevin, would you mind telling us a little bit about your past experience with quartz crystal circuits? Uh, yeah, I've used crystals for a little bit of everything. I really like crystals. As mentioned previously, I sort of have a thing for quartz. So my quick and dirty ritual for consecrating or re-consecrating quartz is to Google quartz is good for X, where X is whatever working or casting I want to do. I particularly love ghost point quartz. It's uh, internally segmented. It's a single quartz crystal with like a phantom point inside from where some sediment fell on the crystal during formation, but then the crystal kept growing around the sediment. So there's like a phantom image of the point of the crystal and it's preserved inside. Um, I find that it works really well to consecrate the bigger half for just general magical use. And then the smaller bit I can separately consecrate for whatever I'm undertaking currently. In particular, quartz is great for cleansing and flow. See what I did there? I can just decide that. So it's easy to wipe the previous consecration out and just do a new one. Uh, alternatively, I'll pick a geometric shape that feels right and consecrate enough crystals for the vertices of the shape. I have like a dozen of them in various sizes, origins, qualities, shapes, colors. So my layouts aren't super uniform on their own. But this said, crystals themselves are inherently extremely uniform. And so I really like the flow created by the disjointed or lopsided space and then the perfectly arranged molecules of the crystals themselves. Hmm, sweet. I don't use crystals a whole lot. They are not really part of my practice. I think they're beautiful. I love to collect them. This Friday, me and a friend are going on a kayaking trip here in the Pacific Northwest to look for agates. Nice. But again, not for any kind of magical purpose, just because I'm a dragon and I like to hoard shinies. Hey, man. Ain't nothing wrong yeah, with that. Yeah, no, not at all. Incense and oils. We've talked a, yeah, we've talked a little bit about scents and herbs, uh, but let's particularly speak to incenses and and oils and extracts sure. again way too many to cover i will also once again point you to scott cunningham's work that we've already mentioned also his encyclopedia of magical herbs and again that book incense oils and brews both of which are exceptional i used to own copies of both of them i have no idea where they are probably in my library spread across the country 
Uh, your scattered library. Scattered library. The mythical scattered Indeed, library. It's not mythical. It's there. <laughs> incense, oils, and brews is great. It teaches you how to make your own incense and essential oils, which I think is pretty important. Can't reiterate this enough. If you're going to take your magical craft, you know, or any craft more seriously, you should make as many of your own things, your tools and ingredients as possible. Again, that's just my personal belief, but I think it's sure. uh, it just changes changes the work it's important to at least learn how they're produced and cunningham is a technician that way um you can also if you want check out lesson 10 in buckland's complete book of witchcraft which is fairly complete for more info on herbs indeed let's talk briefly about effigies and poppets okay so these objects uh represent people and they serve a magical purpose uh, most people might be familiar with the voodoo doll, which is typically used for good or healing magic as opposed to like evil magic hexing or bow. True. Um, that said, you can definitely use a poppet or effigy to do harm. There are always other rituals, though, that you can do to achieve the results you're looking for without harming other people. I will say that I, I am a believer that sometimes you have to do what you have to do. However, I don't always think actually most of the time i think you you should not rush into cursing and hexing people i think there's usually ways around that there's an old wiccan saying that if you can't hex you can't heal so knowing how to do the work is important uh but applying it is often last resort yeah absolutely and and remember that uh that warning you know the law of three otherwise known as the the threefold law or, or um the law of return Basically, the idea that whatever energy you send out into the world will come back to you threefold. Sometimes you'll see this written as just three times three times three. Um, some people say everything comes back sevenfold. Some people refer to this as karma, although that's not it's not really it's not really what karma is. We'd have to no. dig into the Hindu system and actually actually talk about that. Maybe another episode for indeed. That. Anyway, back to poppets. Poppets. Basically, you can make them out of anything that represents a person. You can do cloth or corn husks or wax or clay or plasticine. Uh, you could use a mandrake root if you happen to have access to that. You lucky you. Mm, indeed. Last spring, I used popsicle sticks, which I glued together in the shape of people and drew sigils on them that I'd made uh, representing the name of each imp uh, individual person. I put that on the central stick. And then I used these to do a ritual um, and then buried them in an undisclosed location. So you can, uh, you know, you can really use almost anything person-shaped. Even sort of person-shaped. Indeed. In Solitary Witch, SRW talks about making them out of straw, a variety of fruits and veggies, carrots, potatoes, apples. I don't think those are super easy to carve, but I'm glad she's found success with that. Yeah, I tried making them out of potatoes once. I found carving them to be incredibly difficult. Um, but I can see the use of organic material being beneficial, especially if you're doing a spell or ritual that you want to have decay time. Basically, like as the thing decays, so does like the spell. Soap carving would be really good for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You could also, you know, make a like a wax candle effigy and burn it down if that's sure. what you wanted to do. If you were looking for something more long lasting, you could use wood or soapstone, I suppose. Sure. Uh, now, back in Solitary Witch. SRW makes some good points about the use of poppets in magic. Uh, one of them is something she refers to a tag lock, which is uh, a formal word for a thing we've discussed, uh, which is a tag lock is a physical piece of another human's body that you want to tie your magic to. So things you might look for would be uh, hair, nails, blood, skin, spit, teeth, 
whatever, uh, close personal possessions, such as a piece of clothing, uh, meaningful trinkets. If you can't acquire one of these, you can use a photo of the person you want to connect it to. Uh, and if you can't come up with that, then you could also uh, use their name as long as you know their real name, the name to which they are closest. Uh, if they are a witch or magician, they might have a magical practitioner name. Uh, if somebody's in the SCA, they might have an, uh, an SCA name. Uh, people online probably have an online handle or username. You can't be using that. You got to get the name to which they are most personally connected. And that might be for some people, if they most closely associate with an online persona, that might be a screen name or a username. But typically, it's going to be their own given name or chosen name. If people have chosen or changed their name, the name that they have selected has a great deal of power to it as well. SRW goes into a number of other important things in that section, but they're all pretty general to magic itself. So let's let's leave that for our writing your own magic episode. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm really excited about that one. Up next is magic cords. Okay, so good for binding and joining things together. Also for keeping things in one place. Like your robe. Seriously, many Wiccans Seriously. have their own magic cord that they wear around their robes or their waist during rituals, and they charge them with magical energy by tying knots, um, which they will be releasing later on in a specific order um, to you know, use magic for a ritual. These are a very specific type of magic, which I think is pretty powerful because it requires you to focus your brain on the goal of that spell or ritual um, for a period of time every single day as you release one of those knots from the cord. Raymond Buckland has an excellent section on introducing cord magic um, in Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft in Lesson 11, page 162 to 163. So many people have different opinions on cord construction, length, color, fiber type. Basically, it should be long enough that you can make seven knots in it, one for each day of the week. True. Uh, colors, personal preference, um, or the colors chosen by your coven or group or path that you are following. Personally, I'm a fan of white or black, as with candles, but uh, usually white when it comes to cords. I also like to use organic fibers when at all possible. I'm going to stand by purple. Fair enough. The broom. The broom. <laughs> the broom. Flying around. Right. From my understanding, not typically uh, sufficiently aerodynamic uh, or possessed of sufficient thrust to enact flight. Primarily, it is a tool for cleaning and cleansing a ritual space, both physically and spiritually. So the space is usually swept, sprinkled with blessed water. Uh, there's also the use of it to make a temporary door in the magic circle or to momentarily block out certain energies until they are needed. Uh, Silver Ravenwolf goes into some of the history of the broom and some details on the various broom constructions and their meanings uh, in part two of Solitary Witch. And if you pick up that book, um, I actually found it really fascinating in that section. She also talks about the use of the broom uh, for communication back in the day and how like people would leave it on their porch um, pointed in certain ways or leaning up against the window or certain things. And that would be like a symbol to people walking by that meant something very specific. Like how the Queen of England uses her handbag to get out of conversations she's done ah, with. Yeah. Alternatives to the broom. What about a magical vacuum? And that that's only kind of a... Yeah, definitely. Your magic Dyson. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, you could symbolically cleanse a space with a feather, especially like a big feather. Uh, I could be wrong, but I believe this is done in a variety of uh, Native North American spiritual practices. 
uh, white sage also burned for this purpose. Yeah, when I was uh, working on my undergrad, I read a book called The Wind is My Mother, I believe was the title, by Bearheart. And I could be wrong, but I I think that's covered in the book as well. And he talks about specifically using eagle feathers for this purpose. But um, according to a lot of Native Americans, the eagle feather is like a, a sacred thing. It's supposed to be, if you have one, it's supposed to be gifted to you by the eagle. So either you find it or it falls down in front of you. It's not something you go out and get on your own. Maybe it'd be passed down to you by a relative or a previous shaman, but it would be incredibly disrespectful to go out and purchase um, one of these feathers for that purpose. Um, Also, do not attempt to capture an eagle. Hell no. Don't don't do that. Much like the hippo, the eagle will wreck your shit. Also, like aren't well, at least bald eagles are still endangered in the United States, aren't they? highly yeah. i'm pretty sure pretty sure uh cauldrons let's talk about cauldrons. the cauldron yes what is it double double boil in trouble fire burning cauldron bubble yeah yeah from um from Macbeth. yeah 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 the scottish play the scottish play this is one with a incredibly complex history varies depending on what culture you're talking about silver raven wolf does an excellent job at uh jumping into this cultural variety in solitary witch but practically speaking for the modern day practitioner, it's primarily used for heating stuff up or containing fire itself. If you need to burn um, a large mixture of herbs or incense, you could do this inside your cauldron if you want. Uh, SRW points out that in the craft, the cauldron has three legs on the bottom, representing the three faces of the goddess, uh, maiden, mother, and crone. But sometimes you will find them with four legs, in which case they represent the four classical elements. And again, when we say the craft, we're talking about Wicca or witchcraft, not that big secret. Not that movie. No. Oh. Um, I don't use a cauldron for anything, personally. Um, if I need to brew something up, I just use a pot. Yeah. Flat bottom, goes on the stove. Good move. Yeah, totally. Um, amulets, talismans, witches' bottles. Amulets in particular, specifically uh, used for protective purposes. Yeah, protection is the use of an amulet. It is a, you could say it's a talisman of a very specific type. Talismans have many magical purposes, including protection, but also uh, drawing in certain energies or making astral travel easier, stuff like that. Sure. Uh, Witches bottles. Really, this can be any kind of a container. It could be a bag or a pouch or a clay pot. A glass bottle, like a freezer bag uh, that you put ingredients into and then enchant for a designated purpose. Kind of like a mojo bag in hoodoo. Yeah, there are some legendary examples too, like uh, trapping gin in lamps or all the demons King Solomon supposedly trapped inside a bronze vessel. I thought it was a ring. Yeah, maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure how much physical space demons need. So, dear listener, if you intend to trap a bunch of demons... Don't worry too much about space requirements. Hmm. Also, probably read uh, this section about uh, fighting demons in Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine. Probably should. Great section. Mm. Uh, SRW has a method of making and empowering witches' bottles in Solitary Witch, pages 153 to 155. We'll talk a lot more about spellcraft, and this kind of crosses over between spellcraft and tools. But please take everything... We and anyone else out there sets forth with a grain of magical salt. Whatever works for you works for you, or it wouldn't work for you. Unless you are being initiated into a specific tradition, 
you really should be modifying spells and rituals to fit your conception of magical reality. True that. I first learned about witches' bottles from Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, and I think I made mine in like 7th or 8th grade. For Buckland, though, a witch's bottle is specifically a reflector of magical harm. So it's not any vessel. It's like a amulet that's also uh, sort of operates like the pentacle on the uh, altar for Krieg. Um, in other words, it just sends back whatever evil or negative energy someone tries to push on you. For me, uh, when I was a kid, anyway, I used an old coffee can and I filled it with nails and rusty razor blades and some broken glass and other pointy stuff I found in the junk drawer in the kitchen in my dad's garage. And I'm pretty sure I cut myself and put some blood in there as well. Um, you're supposed to bury it. Um, where it will never be found, but uh, mine I just uh, left in the back of my closet, I think, until I left. I would say that still counts as buried. Yeah, buried in the closet. It got thrown out, moved out. Um, I won't mention anything about what I do now for magical protection in case we have some magical equivalents of security penetration testers listening out there. That's a very specific job. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay. Tools of divination. We talked about these during our last episode, so we're not going to go into a ton of detail here. But I, black mirrors, dowsing pendulums, runes, tarot cards, spirit boards, crystal balls, all sorts of other stuff for divination. Yeah. Tools of the trade. All right. We're getting towards the end here. Let's talk about just some other random stuff. What about masks? Uh, there's a great section in Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine on masks. He's big on masks. Yeah, he discusses them as a metaphor when taking a, some kind of uh, psychological deconditioning or belief shift shifting, uh, which is uh, something I'm a big advocate of. So masks, um, you know, you shed one mask or something like that. It's, it's a metaphor for aspects of your personality. But he also discusses okay. them later in the book in a more literal sense in his section on mask magic, which I believe is on page 153 of Condensed Chaos. Our notes indicate that it's on page 153. It's probably on 153. Sort of like how on Halloween we dress up in different ways. Uh, when we do that, we give ourselves permission to take on a new personality or indulge in aspects of our own personality for a while. Many shamanistic cultures view masks as having a personality of its own. And uh, when we put that mask on, our personalities merge with it or we're overwhelmed by the personality of the mask itself. Sort of like uh, in that Goosebumps book, except not as literal. That's a great Horrifying. It was a spooky book. It was. Hein writes, it's not so much that you wear the mask, but the mask wears your body. He also describes the use of masks as guardians, face painting is also included in this section. I have a big Oni mask that hangs on a door uh, facing my front door. It's like the first thing you see when you walk into my house, except for my suit of armor to the left. That's inviting. It is. So we were talking about face painting. Let's tie that into body painting and tattoo. Uh, Magical tattoos are some of the oldest recorded tattoos. Uh, One uh, frozen hominid body archaeologist recovered from the Neolithic period shows protective sigils tattooed on the body. Uh, War paint designed to give courage and scare away enemies, as well as to create a sense of unity among combatants, uh, later replaced by the uniform. True. I came across Magical Tattoo first, I believe, in my undergrad when I was taking a class called Art in the Human Body. I did my final report for the class on tattooing across cultures and uh, throughout time and found references. Yeah, it was very cool. I found uh, references to Magical body modification in the book marks of civilization by rubin 
If you're just generally interested in anthropology and history of tattoos, I would highly recommend that book, as well as uh, The Painted Body by Michael Thavos, um, Tattoo History, a source book by Stephen Gilbert, and Return of the Tribal by Rufus uh, Camphausen obviously in addition to Ruben's work. And if you find a copy of Marxist civilization, it is out of print. If it's a good copy, keep it. Definitely hang on to that. Uh, I'm a big fan in a slightly more general sense of consecrating my crafting tools, hammers, hammers, uh, chisels, tongs, that sort of thing. Especially if you are then going to use those items to craft other magical implements. Uh, it's like in cooking, you never want to skip a step where you can add depth of flavor. In magical crafting, you never want to skip a step where you can impart the depth of your energy and purpose into your work. Uh, you can consecrate your raw materials to the purpose of being crafted as well. So like bar stock or sheet steel, wood, whatever you're going to be using to craft things. Uh, also your consumables, uh, coal, coke, and propane, charcoal, abrasives, to the purpose of furthering your crafting efforts. Uh, consecrating your workbench, forge, or anvil as an altar. Classic move. Ooh, that's a good idea. I never thought about that. What about musical instruments? We've already mentioned the use of the bell. I am absolutely here for consecrated saxophones, accordions, and kazoos. Uh, gentle listeners, if any of you have consecrated a nifty musical instrument, I don't know, like a hurdy-gurdy or a sitar or a melodica or something, join us on Facebook and Instagram. And let us know. Yes, please do let us know. Stuff to practice this week. Yeah. Consecrate something. Just, just do that. Dedicate it to your magical work. All right. Consecration. What is it? Uh, according to the Watkins Dictionary of Magic, consecration is defined as a ritual in Wicca in which a ceremony is performed to affirm the individual's perception that an object or space is special and or sacred. Uh, for me personally, it is any method you have of communicating a need, purpose, objective, or goal to an object, tool, or space. I like that. That's really um, condensed and not at all convoluted. Yeah. Methods by which to do this. There are essentially two that we're going to talk about. One is by dedication, and that is simply use something for one purpose only. This way, when you pick up an object or otherwise interact with it, your mind will immediately be focused on the dedicated purpose of the implement. Uh, this is probably the simplest method of consecration out there. And as long as the object is solely used for your magical work, it should work fine. But uh, you haven't purified it of any kind of old energies that might be hanging around or blessed it or otherwise dedicated it to a specific deity in any manner of speaking. In order to do that, we need to do some kind of ritual purification and consecration. This ties into the phrase I coined earlier of reciprocal association, where if something is so dedicated that anytime you think of the purpose, you also think of the object. And anytime you touch or think of the object, you think of your purpose. That's a solid consecration. Now, there is just as much variety in this as there is in any other ritual. Uh, we're going to provide a stripped down version of the Wiccan methods because they're perhaps the most palatable, accessible. My own dedication methods are honestly so varied and rudimentary and frankly bizarre that until you lovely listeners have some more experience with the more established methods that are out there, I honestly don't know if they'll help. So we're going to go with some of the more established stuff for you. Um, yeah. Um, Buckland has a pretty specific consecration method for the athame, if memory serves. Okay. Uh, to do this Buckland's way, 
we need holy water or purification water uh, or possibly like holy sunny D or something. But that tends to make stuff kind of sticky. And to be fair, Buckland makes no mention of holy sunny D. Prior to petroleum-based oil, uh, iron yeah. was quenched in urine, blood, other similar fluids. I've actually heard that uh, honey works well, too, but I've never done that. You might end up with a nice caramel-coated blade. That would make sense because sugaring a blade uh, acts to carburize oh. it and creates a layer of extra-hardened material on oh, the very neato. outside edge. Starhawk, an author we haven't mentioned before, um, has a method of making this in the book, The Spiral Dance on page 73. And I think it, it's uh, really clear and to the point, we are going to give you something even more basic than the one provided there or in Buckland or Silver Ravenwolf's work. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to take some water. If you can get it from good, clean spring or ocean water or glacier water, all the better. If not, tap or bottled water is just fine. Put it in your chalice or bowl or vessel, whatever you want. If it's a clear container, it'll help with the visualization, but it doesn't have to be. Now, with the water sitting in front of you, either on the floor, the ground, a table, whatever, raise your hands up and visualize drawing in bright, white, glowing energy down into your hands until your hands themselves are imbued and glowing with it. Now, pick up the vessel of water and visualize transferring that energy into the water. See the vessel and the water glowing with bright white light and all the negative energy and impurities passing out of existence. Focus on this until you've transferred all the light from your hands and are convinced it is so. Bam, you've just made blessed water. A uh, point of order. Please keep in mind that this will not actually remove any physical or chemical impurities from the water. You can't take bad water and magically make it potable water. Blessed water, not always safe water. Just bless water. That is a very good point. Thank you. So now you can use this consecrated or blessed um, water to bless an object or clear magical space, etc. When you do this, visualize the magical light from the water penetrating the object and doing the exact same thing as when you visualized transferring the light from your hands into the water itself. Uh, I guess you could just do this um, with your hands in the object too if you wanted and skip the water step. I think the water also has some significance to it as like a, a medium of flow as a universal solvent. There's also some other stuff going on with that. So use your hands, use the water, whichever you like. Uh, if you're following a specific magical path, there may be some specific magical words or a spell or a prayer to a deity or a chant to go along with this little ritual uh, or use a different one. This is just to get you started. Uh, also in spiral dance, Starhawk discusses how some Wiccan covens will ritually purify participants during the circle casting uh, using salted water or blessed water sprinkled on each participant. Uh, yeah, and you could also do all of this using white sage or palo santo or um, any other creative method you can think of. So that's just cleansing. That banishes all the energy and intention out of a thing. Now you need to set your intentions, consecrating it to the the specific purpose that you want or uh, programming it, if you will. You can do this any number of ways. Some people like to use elemental correspondences. That's fine. So, for example, if the thing represents the northern quarter, the element earth, you might bury it in salt or sprinkle salt on it. If it represents east, the element air, you might wave it through incense while doing a specific chant or uh, ritual of your choice. If it represents south, the element fire, you might heat it up in a flame or wave it through a candle. If it represents west, 
the element of water. I don't know. Pee on it. Stick it in the ocean or a stream or leave it out in the rain or dip it in your neighbor's pool when they're not home. Now to set intention into something, some paths use specific chants and you face each cardinal direction and use a representation of the corresponding element to that direction and say special words. Uh, you can just write a cute little poem or the best thing, just hold the item in your hands or lay your hands on it knowing that it is cleansed and channel your intention, your purpose into the object. Imagine using it for the purpose uh, you want and only that purpose. Foresee scenarios where it is fulfilling this purpose and know that it's so and you're basically done. That's all you really have to do. But if you want something more than that, do the Kevin thing. Google consecrating your tools, consecrating your magic tools. You could even uh, Google that with the specific path you're following if you don't have a book that already talks about it. You can also do a thing called charging, um, which just means storing an object with magical energy for some purpose, like charging a magical cord with energy for a spell. Um, when we made blessed water, we charged it with energy. Some people believe you can charge things just by leaving them in certain places. There's a phrase that goes something along the lines of... Um, events leave marks on people, places, and time. The belief being that if an object is around certain types of energy, it will begin to store that energy. That's kind of the reason we do cleansing and consecration in the first place and why we do banishing rituals. You can directly charge something using a magical implement that you've used many times and it's built up a degree of magical energy. Uh, some people say if you want to charge something with masculine energy, you can leave it out in the sun because the sun is um, a representation of masculine energy or the, or the, the god. Um, and you could do the opposite. If you wanted feminine energy, you could leave it out in the moon because the moon represents um, the goddess, the goddess energy. You can make water with energy this way and then use that water to transfer the energy onto other things. If you want something to be imbued with the most vile sludge energy known to humankind, just take it on a trip to Washington, D.C. Remember, nothing is real and everything is permitted. Belief is a tool, so use it well. All right, to bring this back to our house brew of chaos magic and whatever Kevin's been reading lately, I think the sign of a really well-executed consecration uh, is that like we've discussed, whenever you think of your purpose, you think of the tool you've consecrated. And whenever you think of or touch the tool, you also think of that purpose. Uh, again, I'm going to call that reciprocal association. And it means that you've properly adjusted your brain to have that paired perception. Great. How about some thoughts moving forward? Thoughts moving forward. Uh, how about tools versus empty hands in magic as well as in martial arts? Tools are an extension of the body of the will. They can be used to focus your mind, but they can also distract you from the work that needs to be done in the moment when they are not readily available to hand. Uh, so deeply consider, if not as a permanent part of your practice, performing some magical work with as few additional implements as possible, uh, and none at all if you can swing that. This is a practice I took to long ago, even before coming across Chaos Magic in general, um, though now that I've mentioned it, uh, it's probably important to take a look at page 105 of Condensed Chaos by Phil, Phil, Phil Hine. Hine states, the mark of an advanced sorcerer is to use the so-called empty-handed gesture, 
which is an act of sorcery without the use of physical props or formalized setting. Hein only dedicates about one half of a page to this concept. I deeply believe experimenting with this approach from the outset is fundamental to the deeper development of most of what this podcast will cover. So I encourage you all, um, if you're taking this journey with us, to at least play with it, if not fully adopt it. Also, I really recommend reading Condensed Chaos by Phil Hein. Um, it's very short. Just yeah. in general. It's really it good, is. though. I feel like this is a case where you want to at least play with doing stuff empty-handed at first, or you will start to come to rely on tools. And in some types of specifically path magic and ceremonial magic, relying on tools is okay. They're built into the practice. If you want to be able to do it without all that stuff, you got to start at least some of the time doing it without all the stuff. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have for this episode. We've laid most of the foundation at this point. Next episode, we're going to start talking about writing your own magic. Uh, Until then, learn, grow, and practice, and seek to follow your path. Or don't, and just go with whatever feels right. Also, join our community on Facebook. There's not a lot of action right now, and if we could get some more community members, we'd really love to start having some discussion. But you could change all that. So, until then, our circle is cast and closed, uh, and we must return you now to the normal, I guess, world. Mundane world. The mundane world. We will. For tonight, though, thrice bound and done, so mote it be. Ciao.